If you were here last week, then you know that last Sunday our boiler was broken. And it was absolutely freezing in the sanctuary. Um, I was, for once, happy that I was wearing layers of clothes to keep me warm. And it was so cold in the sanctuary that I, I even for a second contemplated just junking my sermon that I had prepared and just preaching about fire and brimstone. <laughs> my hope was that we all might feel a little bit warmer and that, and that the images of flames dancing around us might ironically give us a little bit of peace of mind. But honestly, though, I, I, I really don't have it in me. I wasn't raised with the flames of hell as a, as a centerpiece of my faith. And it never seemed too appealing to me as, as, an, expre- as an, an expression of the Christian faith. It's actually my hope that all will be saved and that ultimately all of humanity and the whole of creation will be fully reconciled to God. I consider myself a hopeful agnostic about universal salvation. I do not know and I cannot know what God will do, but I hope that God will save all since God loves all. But with that said, I also recognize that I am in the minority among Christians. In the world today and throughout time, most Christians have believed in hell. And since most have believed in eternal damnation, there have always been preachers who like to preach about it. For a whole host of reasons, preachers have called on their listeners to get right with God in order to avoid hell. But of course, one of the reasons why fire and brimstone preachers exist is because they can find support for their views by turning to the Bible. Throughout the Bible, there are lots of examples of God being depicted as angry and wrathful in judgment against the sins of humanity. God is depicted as promising destruction and ruin. Oftentimes, this so-called vengeful God is associated with the, the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures. And yet there are plenty, plenty of examples of God's wrath in the New Testament as well. Take, for example, this morning's gospel lesson. We have John the Baptist, right? And John is decked out in all the trappings of a prophet of old. He's got the clothes, he's got the belt, he's even got the diet of a prophetic figure, locusts and wild honey. He's calling people to return to God and to live more fully into a covenantal relationship with God. And to do that, John is in the wilderness, a space associated with the the time when the Israelites were delivered from slavery in Egypt. And John is baptizing people in the River Jordan, the last river that the Israelites crossed before entering into the Promised Land. In fact, when they crossed the Jordan, they did so on dry land because God parted the waters of the river just like God had done with the Red Sea. With all of this symbolism, John is not 
just trying to let people know that God forgives them. No, all of the symbolism and the baptism itself is meant to remind the people of their identity as the people of God. They are being invited back into deeper relationship with God so that they might prepare themselves for the coming of the Messiah, the Christ. This coming one will usher in a new age and a new creation. And God, I mean, John is imploring the people to get ready for it. But amidst all that, John has some words from, for some of those who are coming out to him. And it is on those words that, that I want to focus on this morning. To the good, respectable, upright, religious people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, John says, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were two different religious philosophies within the Judaism of Jesus' time. And because the Gospels often depict them as quarreling with Jesus, we might have negative connotations about who they were. And yet in their time, these were the good, faithful, and upright people. They were the ones who took God and their relationship with God seriously. So if these people need to watch out for God's wrath, then frankly, we are all in trouble. The wrath to come. It sounds menacing. It sounds punishing. It sounds more like a threat than good news. We might wonder if John isn't trying to to bully and intimidate us into behaving a certain way. And we might legitimately wonder if wrath is a sentiment that really isn't in keeping with who God is. Wrath sounds like out-of-control rage, and that, is not, and that is certainly something that we would not want to associate with God. After all, God is love, as 1 John 4, 8 tells us. But perhaps, perhaps because God is love, we might be able to see why God is also something like wrathful. For if God loves each and every one of us, if God loves the whole of creation, then God cannot help but grieve and be angered by the ways we treat one another. For we live in a world where violence and enmity and war are rampant. We destroy one another and the world we live in out of greed and fear and hatred. We live in a world where just last week, the administration gave approval to deprive access to food stamps to 700,000 people. Already vulnerable people will find it harder to make ends meet and to have a simple meal all in the wealthiest country the world has ever ever known. We live in a world where countless people have been discriminated against or abused or murdered 
because of their gender or their race or their ethnicity or their religion or their nationality or their sexual orientation. We live in a world of stunning beauty that is also desperately and horribly broken. And I think we must say that God feels something, something like wrath and anger in response to this brokenness. God loves this broken world, and God loves each and every creature in it. And so God condemns any instance where any of God's creatures are harmed or diminished. And yet as I name this brokenness of the world, then I must admit that, that I too share in the brokenness. I too treat others callously and cruelly, even those I love. God's wrath is not just reserved for the other, for those guys. It is also for me. It is also for my actions as well. And yet, as I say this, I think it is also important that you not get the wrong idea. I've made a point of saying something like wrath when describing God, because I think there is a danger in using the word wrath or anger to talk about the divine without qualification. Our own patron saint, Augustine, very much a thinker of his time, worried, along with his peers, that anger and wrath were beneath God. Anger in human beings is so often destructive and violent. And Augustine saw the danger of using divine wrath in order to enshrine our own rage. For Augustine, God's wrath is always a function of God's justice. God does not suffer anger as we do. Rather, divine wrath is an expression of God's solidarity with and love for creation. Solidarity with and love for each and every human being. Divine wrath names God's loving response to an unjust world. For Augustine, divine wrath is always used metaphorically. And as we recognize this, then I would not blame you if you wanted to join with that great medieval mystic Julian of Norwich and say that properly speaking, God has no wrath. She wrote, For I see no wrath except on man's side, and God forgives that in us. For wrath is nothing but a perversity and an opposition to peace and to love. More than this, for Julian, not only is God never angry at us, God never needs to forgive us because God is never angry at us. For she saw that great truth, that forgiveness does not change God's mind about us, 
Rather, forgiveness changes us. We are the ones who are changed when we come to realize we are forgiven and not God. We are able to draw closer to God and are able to be restored to relationship with God when we come to the forgiveness that has always been and will always be there for us. And yet, and yet we are told that we can hold ourselves apart. And that word wrath, it metaphorically names the dynamic in play as we live lives estranged from God. Wrath is an alarming word. It is a troubling word. It is meant to disturb us. And perhaps, just maybe, it is a word that might wake us up from our complacency and help us to see that that far too often we live in a prison of our own making or we make a prison for others and trap them in that. In this season of Advent, we are therefore reminded of the need for repentance, of turning toward God. We are reminded of the need to change our hearts and our minds and our lives so that we might live more closely to God, so that we might live lives more closely linked with the divine. In Advent, we turn toward God so that, to use John the Baptist's words, our lives might bear fruit. In Advent, we are to see that this repentance is an act of preparation for the one who is to come. For we are to turn toward God. We are to turn toward God and prepare ourselves to welcome the Christ child, to welcome the Christ child into our world and into our hearts. Amen.